0: Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in, Light's, in Lord's Day 33. There we find God's Word summarized as follows. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God, and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. After the sermon we will sing from Psalm 30 to Stances 2 and 5. love congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that includes you boys and girls, also the young members of this congregation, no doubt you know of enthusiastic Christians who can regale you with their wonderful conversion story. The one moment they were unbelievers and then the Holy Spirit got hold of them and he became believers they became converted Christians, born again. And they can tell you what they were like before they were converted and what they are like now. Whereas in the past they had no hope, lived from day to day, indulging in the flesh in any way that they could, now they have completely different focus and outlook on life. Their lives are now radically different from before. As Reformed believers, we sometimes politely smile at such stories, don't we? We don't want to question their sincerity, but we're somewhat skeptical. Many of us have been brought up in the Christian faith and in this church and consider ourselves to be converted Christians. That's why we go to church every Sunday and we have our children taught in a Christian school and we make our financial contributions to the various causes. We also support mission at home and abroad. We have to write doctrines which has been passed down to us through the generations. And therefore we feel quite confident about ourselves as children of God and of his church. And so we kind of dismiss those sudden conversion stories. We take them somewhat with a grain of salt. Oh sure, we recognize that some people can genuinely speak of a moment of conversion, of being born again, but we're always a little bit suspicious. Will it last? Is it based on the right doctrine? Or is it mainly an emotional response? How deep is that conversion? Do they fully understand what Christian faith is all about what it all entails, and what about the importance of belonging to the, right cho- to the right church? Let's be careful, brothers and sisters. Let's be careful about judging others. Oh sure, such new Christians may not have their theology completely right, and they may not understand many of the important things concerning the Christian faith, But we have to consider that people who speak about their conversion in such a way that they most definitely have changed. They have changed their lifestyles. They have changed the way they act, and they have changed the way they think. They may not necessarily have the right doctrines and have the depth of knowledge, but they have become changed people. Can you and I say the same thing about ourselves? Are we changed people? Are we really, truly converted? And that's what this Lord's Day begs us to ask this morning. The theme is as follows. The Lord wants us to be truly converted. And then we will look at three things. First of all, what conversion is. Secondly, what conversion is for you. And thirdly, what your conversion is for others. Paul says in Romans 8 that those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Living in accordance with the Holy Spirit, then, is a matter of the mind. And when you want to please God, then you think differently. Then you don't do what comes natural, but then you think about what you do before you do it. Let me tell you a little story about that. It's a story about a man whom we will call Eric. Eric has just been to see the doctor. He went to the doctor because he had some health issues, feeling tired, having all kinds of aches and pains. He knew there was something wrong with him, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. After some tests and poking and prodding, the doctor tells him that indeed there are some very serious concerns. He has high blood pressure, his cholesterol is way out of control, and his blood sugars are coming into the range of a diabetic. The doctor tells him that if he continues his lifestyle, he will not live long. At any time, he could be debilitated by a heart attack or a stroke or even die. Eric takes this to heart. That really scares him. And so what does he do? Well, he follows the doctor's advice and he starts exercising and now puts himself on a strict diet carefully monitoring what he eats. He also sets himself a goal as to how much weight he is going to lose. Now you can well imagine that in order for him to be able to accomplish this, his thinking has to change, first of all, he has to change his mind. He has to think differently about food and exercise and about his many bad habits. Before he pops something into his mouth, he has to stop and think. Time and again, he has to keep in mind the goal that he has set before himself before he puts anything into his mouth. Is this healthy food? Do I really need it? Am I really hungry right now? What is the reason that I'm thinking about eating that food? Why would I eat this food in the first place? Because I'm bored? because I want to reward myself for something? Do I eat it in order to satisfy some psychological need? In order to satisfy something deep longing within me? He constantly has to think about what he is doing when he is around food, and that takes effort. It takes determination. Same thing is true with regard to exercise. He knows that for his health he also has to get into an exercise regimen. That also takes effort. But the more and more he sticks to his new lifestyle, the more and more it becomes his second nature. Oh sure, he will fall off the wagon once in a while, but time and again he will get back on his feet and remember the goal that he has set. His thinking has changed. He thinks about life differently. He thinks about himself differently and his health issues become less and less of a concern now that he feels that he has a new lease on life. He's like a new man. Brothers and sisters, that is also what conversion is about. That is the way it should be for you and for me, also with regard to our spiritual health. For we are new creatures in Christ. An unconverted person has a death sentence hanging over him or her. That is also what Paul says to the Romans. He says in Romans 8 verse 6, the mind of sinful man is death. He has his mind set on things that are going to kill him. And if he doesn't change his mind, his thinking, he will die an eternal death. When we dealt with Lord's Day 32, we were told about what the life of an unconverted person is like. Answer 87 tells us that such a person is unchaste, that is, sexually immoral, or that he is an idolater or an adulterer or a thief or a greedy person or a drunkard or a robber. In short, someone who willfully lives a certain sinful lifestyle. That is what defines him. And these are people who delight in their sinful lifestyle. They live for that. That is why they earn money. They earn money so they can spend it on themselves. Their minds are set on satisfying the flesh. A converted person, however, is someone who is not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Holy Spirit. Throughout his letters, Paul reminds the people of Rome, of Corinth, of Ephesus, of Galatia, for example, of what they were like before their conversion, and of what they are like now. For example, he says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Thus far Paul. The fact that these people became Christians made a great difference in their lives, in the way that they thought, in the way that they thought about themselves they no longer think like hardened sinners, but they think like redeemed sinners. Eric, the man that I used in my example, sees himself differently than before. Whereas before he had a sense of hopelessness, his life spiraling out of control, now he no longer sees himself that way. Whereas before, death stared him in the face now he feels that he has a new lease on life oh sure he will fail at times in his quest for a healthier lifestyle but time and again he reminds himself of the death sentence that hung over him and he was still leading that former lifestyle and of the goal that he has set and he gets back on track time and again that's the way it is with conversion as well Catechism says that true repentance or conversion of man is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. Do you know what that means? That means that every time you are tempted to let your passions control you, then you think about what God wants from you. Then you think about who you are, a redeemed Christian a born-again Christian, a new person. And then you change your mind. You do the opposite. You set your mind on what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. Your goal is no longer to live your life to satisfy yourself. That's such an empty way of living. But your goal is to live your life for God. We've come to the second point. In their letters, Paul and Peter also refer to the goal of the Christian lifestyle. Paul says that he presses on to that goal throughout his whole life. And Peter writes in verse 9, in the first chapter of his first letter, about the goal of faith. What is the goal of our faith? What is the goal of your faith? Well, he says the goal of your faith is the salvation of your souls. That is what you have to aim for. You have to have in mind your salvation. You may say to yourself, all this sounds, sounds kind of Armenian, doesn't it? Does that not mean then that we have to do these things in our own strength? That depends on our own effort? No, not at all. But God does put us to work. Throughout the scriptures we see that, and the catechism also reflects that. If it would depend on us, however, then we would already already give up before we even begin. For it is impossible to do any of this in your own strength. In the previous Lord's Day, the question was asked, why we must do good works? And then the answer was that Christ, and here it comes, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit. And so it is, first of all, God's work. He is the one who renews you. Peter also writes, that about, writes about that in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says to the believers that the Lord Jesus has given us, listen carefully, that the Lord Jesus has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Lord Jesus has made us new creatures And that is not something you do in the first place. And when did he do that? He did that when he rose from the dead, brothers and sisters. That's when he gave you new life. Because that is what Peter is referring to. That is the moment that you receive new life from God at the time of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gave you not just physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life. And you may know that if you believe in him, if you believe that he is the one who has done this for you, then you can also share in his life, both physical and spiritual and eternal. And so if someone asks you whether or not you were born again, then you can tell him, yes, I am born again. But then you give the honor and glory to God first of all. And then you can tell him exactly when and where that happened. It happened when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It happened when he defeated Satan. It happened when the Lord Jesus, for my sake, denied his fleshly desires not to have to go through his suffering and death. And he gave himself totally up for our sakes. And because you believe in him, you can now also share in his victory over death. Because you belong to him, you are a new creature. And if that is how you see yourself, then you will also live in accordance with that image that you have of yourself if you see yourself as a new creature of Christ, then you have a totally different goal in life. And then your motivations for living is totally different from those who do not know Christ. And that shows in numerous ways. For example, you don't then no longer react in anger when somebody hurts your feelings. Because if that's what you do, you're going according to the flesh. And then you are not out for revenge. And then your desire is the opposite, to win others for Christ. Now then, it is obvious that those who at one time were total unbelievers, and who have got to know the Lord Jesus, that they will have radically changed their thinking and their lifestyles. No longer will they go to the bars and get drunk. And no longer will they be sexually immoral getting into bed with whoever would be willing. They would no longer be driven by worldly ambitions. Just like the new Christians that Paul is speaking about, their whole lifestyle changes. So does their thinking. But let's look at ourselves. Let's look at whether or not you and I, whether our lives are totally changed. You may think that's not necessary. After all, I come to church every Sunday, don't I? I pay for church and school and I do this and that. Well, think again. What is truly important to you? How do you think that you should serve the Lord? It is true that you are brought up in the church that then you learn to live like a Christian. But is that also true about you? How does that show in your life? Oh sure, it shows in the outward things. You don't partake of the kind of entertainment the world partakes of. And if you do, you do it secretly. And you go to church every Sunday. And you do all the things that are expected of you, you participate in church life, and that's good. But there is much more than that. When you are born-again Christian, that you do not act in the same way as unbelievers do either. no, then you are a blessing to others. We come to the third point. For as a newborn Christian, then, for example, well, you don't slander. You don't speak in a derogatory way about other members of the church. You bite your tongue. You're kind to others. You do your utmost not to treat your fellow man with contempt, even though they may have done that to you. And you, your young people, when your mom and dad ask you to do something, then you don't give them a big mouth, but then you too, you bite your tongue. And you are obedient. Why? Because you are a Christian. Because you are a new person. You treat everyone with whom you come into contact with respect. As a Christian, you must be like the Lord Jesus who accepts all kinds of people, including those, actually I should say, especially those who are not easy to love. And then you deny your natural inclination to lash out at others who hurt you. When you have a difference of opinion with someone, then as a born-again Christian, you do not attack the person, but then you kindly point out the errors. And so the list as to how you conduct yourself as a Christian goes on and on. You don't do the kinds of things that the flesh want you to do but what god wants you to do children have to learn that already at a young age nowadays you read a lot about cyber bullying young people harassing each other on facebook they put another person down by writing all kinds of nasty and derogatory things about others It's awful. I sure hope that this doesn't happen with our young people. And that you do not say things about your classmates to make them feel bad. So that you can have a sense of power over them. So that you can belong to the end group. And so I hope that the children of this congregation are listening to this. Once again, you're Christian. You know what that means? That means you have been given a new life by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave that to you when he rose from the dead. In a few weeks, we will celebrate Easter. We will celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus rose so that you can live. And that's why you must show joy, joy of being a child of God. And you have to show that in your life. And then as a Christian, rather than putting other people down, you build them up, especially those who are not easy to love. And you include them, just like the Lord Jesus included the weak and the down and out. And when people do something mean to you, then you don't retaliate. No, on the contrary, then you do what the Lord Jesus says, you turn the other cheek try to win them over. And you make an extra effort with those who are a little bit different from you. Instead of shunning them and saying bad things about them behind their bags, you try to include them. You're nice to them. And you protect them from others who would do bad things or say bad things about them. And the same thing goes for the teenagers and the older young people in our church. When you are a truly converted Christian, then you think and then you act differently than the people from the world. You treat your friends and your parents with love and respect. Whenever someone hurts your feelings and you want to react, then you stop and think first, just like Eric has to do, who wants to lead a healthy lifestyle. You want to be careful what comes out of your mouth. And then you try to bring that person over. And then you don't participate in the things that the world participates in either. But you don't go to the casinos and to the strip joints and to the bars. And what about the older members of the church? When you think about apostasy, blacksliding in the church, do you then think of such things as having the right translation, having the right hymns, the right order of worship? Do you then think about what the, how the Lord's Supper should be celebrated? Are you afraid that the church is backsliding because of certain decisions of synod with which you disagree? It is good that you are concerned because you should be. You should be watchful that our worship does not become man-centered and that we whittle away at the centrality of God. And so it is a good thing that you are concerned. But don't begin there. Begin with yourself. Think about your, yourself. And think about that you yourself backslide time and again. Let that be your biggest concern. How do you react when someone does wrong? Do you then react in a Christian way, or do you react in the way that your old nature wants you to react? By being angry, by lashing out. And when you see those things that are wrong in the church, do you then become angry at those whom you feel are responsible? Do you then say things that you really shouldn't be saying about those people, and about the leaders in the church? How do you conduct yourself? at home, with your wife or your husband? How do you contact yourself with your children and your grandchildren? Do you do that in a Christian way? Or do you try to manipulate them in one way or the other? Do you try to get your own way? Brothers and sisters, we're all such sinners. But we are first of all redeemed Christians, all of us. And so we have to live differently. It has to show from our lives that we are different, that we are changed people, that you are born-again Christians. Paul gives his own life as an example as to what a changed person is like. He writes writes about his former life in his letter to the Philippians. He writes about the time when he was an unconverted Jew. He was convinced at that time that he was doing the will of God. And he mentions his credentials. He had the sign and the seal of the covenant, circumcision, being circumcised, as he says in Philippians 3 on the eighth day. And as he grew up, he was full of zeal for God. He became an important leader, even in the church, a Pharisee. He was legalistically, legalistically righteous, faultless even, he says. In other words, he was the picture of piety. He kept all the rules and then some. If you were to look at him, then you would say, boy, that man, he's got it all together. He really knows how to keep the law. He must be really close to God. And Paul was very concerned about the Jewish church. He was afraid that some Orthodox teachings were coming into the church. And he persecuted those who came with those teachings. But then he was converted. Then he realized that you don't serve God in that way. He says, all that righteousness didn't do me any good. I consider them rubbish. He says, there is one thing that I want to know, and that is the power of Christ, and that in some way, somehow, through him, I can attain life, eternal life. Don't think that after his conversion, Paul had an easy time of it, not at all. He went all over the world to preach the gospel, and to reach out to whoever came on his path, in churches all over the Roman Empire, in church. Churches all over the empire were established. But that didn't mean that there was peace. But in those churches that he established, he also encountered hostility and anger and jealousy. Some of them are jealous of him because he has such a good reputation. And so what do they do? They attack him. And now here is Paul in prison in chains, and he hears about these things. Now listen what he says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. He says further, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that he can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But now, how does Paul react to this? In anger? In despair? Oh, what's going to happen to the church? No, it's surprising how he reacts. He says in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul trusted that God would continue to gather his church. In spite of the many things that were going wrong, also in those newly established churches and look at the church now it's all over the world it's God's doing Paul didn't throw up his arms in despair he didn't become angry at those who are hurting the cause of Christ no he continued to reach out to them and he rejoices in the midst of it all for in spite of it all he sees God at work and he is faithful Paul is a truly converted man. The good works he does, he does out of true faith. Faith in God. Faith in Him who changes life. And who wants us to live changed lives. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it is a daily process to live like that. It takes effort every time. And you have to aim to become what you are already in Christ. A new creature. Christ made you a new creature. Now show it. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 12 and following. Not that I've already obtained all this. Of course he's talking about his own effort here. He knows he's already a child of God. But he says not that I've already obtained all this. Or have already been made perfect. But I press on. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's life. He struggled to show himself to be a child of God. Brothers and sisters, let us do the same. Amen.